It's time to think bigger. Elias Pedersen scores! And think bolder. Matthew Kachuk, what a goal! This is Rintoul and Sermon. Another chance, great save by Markstrom. There is shot, be back. Great save by Timko. On the Sportsnet Radio Network. Good Monday morning. Another Monday, another day, another dollar. Hope you are enjoying this morning so far. Thank you for joining us during the dog days of summer. Rintoul and Sermon, I am Karen Sermon. Scott Rintoul into week three of his three-week vacation. Three straight weeks of vacation. What? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Luck, I, I said on Friday, I'm like... I need to find out who his agent is because somehow he got a really good deal. So my co-host today is Bick Nazar, co-host of Bick and the Boss on Sportsnet 650. Bick, good morning. How are you today? How was the alarm this morning in the 5 o'clock hour I've got uh, an old school alarm. I don't trust my, uh, my, my, the my cell, cell phone. phone. I just I can't do it. Can't do it. So I've got one of those old ones that I set up across the room that you got to get up and it's like, meh, 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 just like the worst sound in the world. It's the only way I can wake up. You literally took like the first rule of broadcasting school and actually applied it to yourself because the rule was it's like yes. don't put it beside your bed, put it across the room so you actually have to get up out of bed for early morning shifts. And um, I worked the morning show for a very long time at a station previous to this mm-hmm. and uh, the alarm would go off at like 3.30, sometimes in the 2 o'clock hour when I was doing television. And nope, <laughs> the alarm sat next to me so I could snooze and snooze and snooze. I didn't follow that rule at all. Well, well, what did your significant other think of that? If you have a 3 a.m. 3 a.m. alarm going off that loud. The oof. time I was single. Okay. So now uh, we get up at similar times. So I set my alarm for like 5.30. His goes off at 5.35. So I have a dual alarm. And then we, I think I get out of bed at about 5.50. I, I'm still great at walking across the room, hitting snooze and just going, going right back. back. Like I, I'm not above doing that. I'm just saying it's across the room. That's just awesome. Just to get my body going. But yeah, it's, uh, I, I need it because I missed a bunch of flights. When I was uh, younger. Okay. And as a gag gift, someone bought me, I think like off Craigslist. Yeah, it's, it's, it's ratty. It's got like the wood paneling on it. Right. Yeah, it's 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 a rough look, but I I need it. It's the only alarm I can wake up to. Well, awesome. I'm glad you woke up to this morning, got out of bed, <laughs> stayed out of bed, and came in for the show. Um, just going to let everybody know, this is like a blind first date for Bick and myself. We'll get into yeah. that a bit more as the morning goes on. Well, just just for context, okay, so this is uh, month five, six for you here? About that. It been Friday had been 18 weeks since I had... Been in studio and I'd been in a so week previous. So yes, if you want to do math, carry the four. Yeah, yeah five, five, yeah, months. five months. Yeah. Uh, obviously, hey, I don't know if everyone remembers, but COVID nineteen is a thing that's happened. It's still a thing, yes. Uh, so I haven't been coming in office, and you came in one for one week. Mm-hmm. But since your uh, arrival date, uh, we have never met. No, and, and we hadn't met prior to either. I'm trying to think, like, yeah, just like in the Vancouver media scene, I don't think like maybe in passing or maybe we're in the same venue, but never yeah. like, hey. I'm Vic. Let's and have a hey, conversation. Your care never <laughs> happened, and so uh, here we are doing a show together. So yesterday we uh, spoke for the first time on the phone. <laughs> Today we met for the first time at about seven fifteen this morning Pacific time in the studio. Uh, so we're going to kind of have some fun with this, and uh, it's going. We're going to play it like a blind first date and go from there. Find out a little bit about each other. It's funny. Someone had mentioned to us in the inbox when Scott and I first started working. It's like I think someone said something like. I said, I'm not a golfer or mm-hmm. something like that. And Scott didn't know that. And one of the inboxes says, well, if you're co-host together, shouldn't you know these things? I'm like, no. Uh, COVID, 
We yeah. can't actually get together and have a beer and just, you know, shoot the, you know, what over some good times. We have to actually just be physically distanced from each other. <laughs> so I was off last time. week. And instead of doing the vacation, going somewhere, or whatever, yeah. my goal was to do exactly what we just talked about. Like, meet up with all the people I haven't seen in a year and a half. Awesome. And that's literally all I did. Family members that I haven't seen. Yeah. Fr- like, some of my closest friends that, you know, people have different levels of seriousness of how they're mm-hmm. taken. So, some people I haven't seen in a year and a half. And it's like, Saturday, I'm coming over for dinner. Everyone's double vaxxed? Great. I'm coming over for dinner. I didn't pay for a meal all week. It was fantastic. <laughs> That's awesome. That was also my game plan. Uh, but Save yeah, money. That, as far as like getting to know people again, yes. That's what my whole last week was, just a, a packed schedule. And like just to point this out, it's not like Bic, you and I haven't met before or anything. Like we literally as just I don't I, know I, any other show. I know Halford and Bruff because I work with them before. Our text message exchange is like four texts prior today. It was yeah, like, exactly. hey, welcome to 650. Welcome to the family. And then it's like, hey, we're working together on Monday. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> exactly. So we'll uh, we'll get into that as the show goes on. I do want to, though, set up the show. Uh, it is a busy show. Uh, no guests, though, in the first uh, hour. We're going to get into a bunch of stuff, Olympics, all that kind of stuff. That is wrapping up. Second hour, we're joined by Sportsnet's Donovan uh Bennett. I was going to say Donovan Mitchell. I don't know. Donovan <laughs> Bennett. I called Donovan Bailey. Donovan Bennett. Yeah. On Friday for the show because Donovan, of course, is our Monday regular. We'll wrap up the Olympics with him. We'll discuss the first week of the CFL season, which did start with losses for the teams that we cover in the two markets at 650-960. Lions losing to the Riders on Friday. Michael Riley, we thought he'd start. Then he didn't. Then he played. Then he came out. Really weird game with the Lions. The injury that never was? Well, I think there's an injury. If you saw Michael Riley throw football in the second half of that game, there was definitely something uh, going on with him. Uh, So we'll talk to Donovan about that. Also, the Stamps losing by a field goal to Calgary East. I call Calgary East the Toronto Argonauts because they basically took all the free agents that the Calgary Stampeders had in the last two seasons and signed them in Toronto. Week one of the CFL season, I mean, can't really read too much into it. No preseason, and I understand. Things don't get real till Labor Day. Well, that, that, and that's like four weeks into yeah. the season this year. So, um, yeah. Anyways, we'll get into all of that with him. Bottom of the second hour, we're going to discuss the Blue Jays. They're uh, on fuego right now. Wrapping up their first homestand at Rogers Center in Toronto. 15,000 strong per game. I'm assuming they hit that at every game of this homestand. I know I would be there if I had the ability to. Arden Zwelling from Sportsnet. Uh, he's the Blue Jays analyst. He'll stop by. Third hour of the show. You and I are pretty excited about this guest, Beck, because Mirren Fader is going to join us. She's a staff writer with The Ringer and author of Giannis, The Improbable Rise of an NBA MVP. Now, she's been working on this book for quite a while. It's coming out in hardcore, uh, hardcover on August 10th, so that's tomorrow, actually. You and I got a digital version early of the book for this interview, but I'm really excited to talk to Miriam because she did this book on Giannis prior to him winning the NBA title, right? And just talking about him, you know, from his um, his start in Greece and, you know, all that goes into with the family. And we'll get down into this as the show goes on. But, you know, modest times, to say the least. Mm -hmm. Very modest times for that family and how soccer was a sport, but then he got recruited to play basketball and then went all in. And because of his size and his athleticism, he was drafted by the Milwaukee Bucks. And I guess they say the rest is history at that point. Well, one of the more... Interesting athletes uh, in sports right now, just because like his demeanor in today's world is very attractive. It's very endearing. A lot of people, you know, you would see his the posts on social media, his mm-hmm. post game stuff, and everyone 
gravitates towards it. And then you think, okay, well, where does that come from? And you start digging through his history, like uh, Mirren did, and it's okay. This is how the the article is now, how it came about mm-hmm. for for his upbringing, and it, it, it's really fascinating. And uh, yeah, she, she'll be a, a blast to talk to. Yeah, so that's coming up in the third hour of the show. A couple of other things, maybe we're working on. We'll uh, let you know as it goes on. But Vic, as we mentioned at the top, yes, this is our blind first date. We're gonna play. You know, we're gonna kind of find. Some stuff out about each other, you know, you know, like what's your favorite color? Uh, red, blue, green. I, I, I can't choose one. I, I'm not a choose one person. Okay. So can't make up his mind. Check. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, hang on. Like, what's your, uh, first concert? Our Lady Peace. Old Winnipeg nice. Arena. Last row. Last oh. row. Are, yeah, scalpers Christ, Christmas tickets from oh, the parents. I guess it shows how much they wanted were willing to invest in my first concert. <laughs> it was Our Lady Peace first concert without parents, obviously. That's a pretty oh, good one, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like Backstreet Boys or something. Like no, that I, I did say I think my second one was in sync. Oh, okay. So there's that. There that was still a pretty bit, good. That's still pretty good. I mean, this is back in the early 2000s when in sync was the, if not one of the yeah. biggest bands in the world. Going to see Justin Timberlake is still cool today. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. So I, I saw him when he, you know, he, before he cut the, the locks off, the blonde dyed locks off, but yes. Um, did, did you leave the parents going like, bye, 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 I do that? And they're like, <laughs> see ya, see ya fam. Bye, bye, bye. No, I did not. <laughs> no, I did For those not. that aren't watching or can't see, I'm doing the, the fist the, the bumps dance, too. The dance, the fist bumps, yeah. I, do I know it off by heart? Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Anyways, uh, okay, so as we move on, uh, over the weekend we saw the Olympics come to an end. Uh, Summer Olympics come and gone. It was an Olympics unlike any other in more ways than one. You know, there were so many questions going into these Olympics big. COVID-19, would there be an outbreak? What would it look like with no fans? Would it still feel like the Olympics? Should the Olympics even be held with the state of the world that it's still in? They came and went without really any news of a major outbreak. We heard about, you know, positive cases prior to and isolation and all the concerns about that. Canada had no cases of COVID-19 at these Olympic Games. So kudos to our uh, Olympians, whether it was because of vaccination levels or just following protocols to the T. Kudos to Canada. Not a single positive case. And some events looked weird without fans. Some didn't. I mean, it was one of those things where it just depended if you were focusing on the event or if you're focused on the surroundings. Beach volleyball was one that I found was very evident. There was no fans. I was just going to say, like, like that angle. one is like the curling of yes. of the Summer Olympics, right? You kind of want it to be a party. Mm-hmm. Now, I know curling historically, hey, maybe. Oh, it's y- a party. Y- yeah, but, you know, we don't associate it with party. Cur- like, curling's a party. And, you know, beach volleyball is the one that definitely jumped out of boy, it would be awesome if there was some crowd noise here. And they had the DJ there too, trying yeah. to like pump the tunes. And it's just like, I, it's I, I not don't really the get same. that. It's like, you the players focus at that stage. Anyways. Uh, Tony Dua Lipa going in the background. <laughs> it's funny because these games started, I was very conflicted. I don't know how you felt, but it was, can I enjoy watching this just knowing, should they even be played basically? Mm-hmm. Like we knew the residents of Tokyo, a lot of them did not want these games to be on. They basically said like, let's just get them done with because of what the Tokyo government implemented with restrictions and the rise and basically they raised tolls on bridges and roads within the city to try and keep these um, the, keep the residents home they cordoned off businesses so that even locals couldn't go into these businesses so people were losing money so there's a lot of questions about it I tried to focus on the athletes and the stories and what we were mm-hmm. seeing on 
like on the field, on the court, whatever the case was, on the track. And honestly, once the competition began, it was easy to just use the Olympics as an escape, at least for me. I was able to enjoy all the competition, enjoy the stories, because at the end of the day, it's about the athletes and the fact that this is their stage. And yep. every four years, maybe two, if you want to talk about the world championships, but we don't see it on television. We don't get the kind of hurrah around the Olympics. We don't get to find out the backstories mm -hmm. of some of these athletes and the incredible feats that they've had to go through to get to these games. So in the end, I enjoyed these past two weeks. I'm a little bummed it's all over. I understand it has to come to an end. But for me, I was really captivated for it. I don't know about you if you did. Time uh, change a little it, interesting? Well, the time change had a big impact on it, right? And and there were times I set that ratty alarm clock to, you know, watch the the women's soccer or something like that. Otherwise, it was, you know, PVR, catching up online afterwards. Uh, so live in the moment, I would say a handful of events that I was you know, waking up at 2, 3 a.m., 5 a.m., whatever it was to, right. to, to check it out. But, you know, by and large with the Olympics, and you're thinking of you know, separating logistical nightmares versus athletics, with the Olympics in general, you know, the IOC's history and all this mm -hmm. sort of stuff, it's easy. I think we've trained ourselves to do that, of separating, like, sketchy histories and, yep. you know, protocols and things that the IOC has gone through and just watching the sports. So that aspect of it, it was easy for me to do, mm -hmm. but with the COVID you know, cloud over it as well, because this wasn't the first event, right? Like we've been through this of, oh, should Dude. they be playing? Should they not yes. be doing this? MLB. And, you know, I'm thinking of like Justin Turner on the field. And it's like, oh, is this a thing? Like we've been through all the kind of the scary moments mm -hmm. of sports in COVID time. And I think it was easy to just kind of process this again of, hey, look, there's a lot of citizens that are very concerned about this. Nobody is not sympathetic to that. It's it's 2021. This is what we do. We've been through this all, and everyone understands the the dangers of COVID. But at the same time, it's like, okay, this is sports on TV. It, like, this is our escape. As much as I was talking about, hey, visiting family members and friends, they're still, like, traveling with a mask on and mm -hmm. trying to be safe and all this sort of stuff. We just kind of understand this, and, and this is the reality. And, and escape is the perfect word for it because the, the Olympics provides that. And Canada, the performance that they put forth mm -hmm. was absolutely incredible. It was actually Historic. Uh, 24 medals overall, the most by Canada in a non-boycotted games, of course. 1984 in Los Angeles. Uh, 44 medals overall, I believe. But yes, this is a non-boycotted games record. Seven gold medals tying the gold total from 92 Barcelona. Again, tying the most in a non-boycotted games. 19 of those medals were won by those competing in female sports. Five medals by male athletes. Canadian athletes won medals on 14 of 17 days. That's basically three days we went without winning a medal. And yes, to cap it all off, we actually finished with a gold medal on the final day. It was Kelsey Mitchell in um, sprint cycling. It was actually a very, it's a very compelling uh, event. But it was Canada winning international soccer tournament. Uh, an international soccer tournament won by Canada. I don't think I ever thought I would state those words in my lifetime. The hope was that I would, but I didn't think I would. So it started with a silver, ended with a gold, and in between were 22 memorable moments by Canadians. Bick, I'm going to pose you this question. Were these the most memorable, not successful, because we've already said it is the most successful summer games in Canadian history other than L.A. Is this the most memorable summer games for you? Okay, so I approach this in the in the, the manner in which we talk about something like hockey trades or just, just trades in general. If you get the best player, you got the best deal. Mm -hmm. So I think there were more moments in these Olympics than others previously. But did they have the best Canadian Olympic moment ever? And I'm not sure I can say that. 
And so I, I would just say, hey, what's what's the best moment for me? It's 96. It's mm-hmm. Donovan Bailey racing past everyone, 9.84. Like, that still stands out to me. I know where I was. I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it right now. Mm-hmm. Like, being the world's fastest man, and Jamie and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, like, being the world's fastest anything, it's an easily relatable thing that everyone can attach themselves to. It's it's the essence of sport. I can run that distance faster than you. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is the moment that stands out. This Olympics on a whole... Very close second, like really close second. But I don't know if any one particular moment outdid that one. You could say, well, Canada is atop the podium in an international soccer event. Canada wins gold Mm -hmm. in women's soccer. You could say Canada holds the title of world's greatest athlete right Mm -hmm. now. And that's Damian Warner, who won decathlon gold. I'm... I want to disagree with you, but I find myself still saying maybe the Olympics in 1996 because it did a couple of things that Olympic Games. One, it took away, we had the world's fastest man Mm -hmm. in Donovan Bailey. And the world's fastest team. It also took away what happened in 1998 in Seoul and the stigma that came with Ben Johnson and testing positive because we thought we had the world's fastest man and then he tests positive. We all know what came with that, whether or not Carl Lewis did whatever he did. Still, it's a positive test. He had the medal stripped from him after he won it. So you think about that, it's six, uh, eight years later, he's able to capture gold, kind of not forget that from everyone's memory, but put it as a distance back of the mind. Okay, now Canada is atop the podium in the United States too. Like they did this in a country where they generally have the fastest men in the world. Not to mention, Linford Christie was still supposed to be winning this event, and he double he disqualifies from this tournament or from this race. We forget about that. Mm-hmm. Like he had a double double false start, and he was disqualified, which led to not saying that Donovan Bailey wouldn't have won, but just everything that goes around that. And High drama. To hold the world record and just hold that title, I mean, at the time, it was just incredible for this country. And you could say, kind of changed the direction of athletics in this country, right? Like, he put a focus on, okay, a Canadian can do this. Mm -hmm. So we need to, you know, put some money, invest some money. And that could have led to where Andre de Grasse is today, where Damien Warner is today. So these were memorable in numerous ways, but that one was... Or, or even just like the own the podium campaign of just like, you know, 2010 was the first time Canadians, I, I felt, felt comfortable kind of puffing their chests out of like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to win these golds. You want to talk about a single moment that kind of spurs on a generation. Like you can kind of trace that back to 96 and Donovan mm-hmm. Bailey, you know, thumping the chest as he wins and like arrogance, yelling. Arrogance. Yeah. And like Which confident arrogance. Like confident arrogance. And, and yeah, it's. That to me is the moment. I, I might even put like Daniel Lagali up there too, uh, like 2000 of you know winning wrestling, and you know that was a huge moment when we were talking about you know the the diversity of Canada and mm-hmm. his story, which is talking about Giannis a minute ago of like you know coming to this country and 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 we welcomed with open arms and achieving to such a high level. Mm-hmm. Like that one is, is another medal that always has stood out to me uh, in the Olympics. So as these show goes on probably in the next half an hour. We're going to give us our top five moments of these uh, Tokyo games. They came to a close. Paralympics still to go. And um, (laughs) six months from now, 
We're going to be talking Olympics once <laughs> again. Just quickly, because for those of you who haven't tuned in, there's a lot of stuff that's been going on today. But one of the biggest news stories that came out was the fact that Team Canada did announce its coaching staff for Beijing 2022. And yeah, we think usually every two years between the Olympics. No, we know that's not the case this year. Literally six months. So Canada announces John Cooper will lead Canada's men's Olympic team as head coach. He'll have Bruce Cassidy, Pete DeBoer, and Barry Trotz on the bench. But I don't think any surprises when it comes to these. you got the two-time defending Stanley Cup champion in John Cooper, Barry Trotz, two-time uh, Eastern Conference finalist, Bruce Cassidy, we know what he's done with the Boston Bruins, and Pete DeBoer uh, with the Vegas Golden Knights. So I don't think any surprises from this coaching staff. No, uh, it's a four I expected. Uh, at the same time, I'm kind of looking at, uh, and I think it's a bit of a, maybe a bit more of a reach, but like, could Rick Bonus have been in, in, in this conversation? Especially just, you know, short tournament sprints. You talk about someone who, who's great at managing emotions and and managing uh, players outside of, like, the, you know, the X's and O's. He's fantastic, mm-hmm. obviously. But, you know, that's someone maybe that could have been included in this conversation. But these were the four expected. Uh, no surprises. All, all worthy as well. Well, and what is interesting about this is the fact it was announced today but we still don't have an actual announcement that mm-hmm. NHL players are going to the still Olympics. Still got a plan. You still got a plan. It will exactly. And the NHL did set out a schedule for the season with the Olympic three-week break built in. Look, the NHL, Gary Bettman, believe it or not, ha- keeps reiterating the fact that we want to do the players a solid. We said, if you extend the CBA, like, look, we will do our best to get you back to the Olympic Games. A lot of hurdles to still overcome. We do know the fact that Emily Kaplan with ESPN put out earlier this summer that they did find an insurance provider for COVID insurance. I don't know if you've booked a flight for anything, Vic, but I've pre-booked a trip to Mexico in February for a friend's wedding. You buy COVID insurance. You buy your normal insurance and you buy COVID insurance. Now, it's not the $64 that I'm going to have to pay that the NHL is going to have to have covered for these games. But they do have a provider. I'm guessing it's pretty pricey. I don't know who's going to pay for that. So I guess that's... imagine the cost. Oh, right. Because if someone gets COVID and there's an outbreak, like, it's going to be incredible. And the fact that we did find out, like, guess what? COVID is not going to be gone by February. It's just not. We see, we're seeing it increase in the United States. We're seeing it increase around the world. Here in Canada, our numbers are going up. Yeah, vaccinations are still happening, but they're slowing down worldwide. So, you know, it's going to look pretty much the same, I think, Bic, when it comes to what we saw in Tokyo, what we saw in Beijing. Like, are you gonna, do you think there's going to be fans? Well, there was no. a report today that it, it, it might, the protocols might be a bit tighter than what we saw in Japan. And, and like, okay, I understand. Take this seriously. But at that stage, at what point do athletes say, like we already saw a bunch of athletes pull out of Tokyo Olympics. Mm-hmm. Especially, what, pro- especially professional ones, like look yes. at the tennis side of things. Yes. So, At what point do we see athletes f- upcoming for Beijing say, you know what, this is too tough, we'll st- I, I, I'm prepared to skip. Well, and a lot of the NHL players like to bring their families. It's a social thing, right? Like you're you're already on the road from your family how often during the season. <laughs> you're just coming off some really two tough seasons where one, if you were in the bubble in Edmonton, you were away for a very long time from your friends and family. This past season, yeah, you got to see your family, but it was in a very like strict environment. What do the protocols look for like for the NHL season? And if you're going to go to Beijing, do you want to go leave your family behind, but also just be, okay, you go from your hotel room? 
to the rink. Like, it'd basically be like the bubble in Edmonton. And do players want to do that again? We know how important it is for these players to play in the Olympics. They love playing for their countries. They love putting on the jersey, especially like we, I want to see Team Canada. I want to see Sidney Crosby and Connor McDavid play on the same team because guess what? This is likely the last time it's going to mm-hmm. happen in this sort of Olympic best-on-best tournament. So I want to see it happen. But the more it goes on and say there is a deal done, but it's like, do I want to do this for three weeks or can I stay home with my family, maybe do something a little different than basically follow these strict protocols, be tested every day, all this kind of stuff. The thing I'm curious about is will there be one player who kind of leads the cause? And I don't mean like, hey, rally people say, hey, we shouldn't go. But who will be the first player to say, you know what, I'm not comfortable. And if it's a high enough star, will a bunch of other people say... Do you think there will be, though, with the NHL? But because like, if they... De- say they decide to go... I don't know if they will, but I'm just curious if, if if we see one, what's the domino effect? It's true, because you've seen it with, say, vaccinations in the NFL. Mm-hmm. Patrick Mahomes comes out and says, I'm getting the vaccine, I'm promoting it, blah, blah, blah. Guess what? Kansas City has one of the highest vaccination rates in the NFL. So it's... I can see where you're coming with that. It's just, to me, I wonder... NHL players don't like to speak out too much no. against anything. So to them speaking out about, I don't know if it's very safe. And it could be a athlete in an interview, in a print interview, and it just kind of gets slipped. And then all of a sudden it's out there and the world grasps on that. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, Sidney Crosby doesn't want to go to the Olympics. Yeah. Does everybody else or doesn't think it's a good idea to go to the Olympics? What does that mean for the NHL? The one thing that gives me pause is just like this younger generation is as much as we talk about NHL players are very, you know, try to fall in line. Mm -hmm. A younger generation, like a 23, 24 year old player. Connor McDavid's not saying he's not going to the Olympics. But it doesn't need to be a Canadian. It it can be a star from any country. And if it's one person to do it, does that raise the eyebrows of some other players say, you know what? I was already feeling uneasy. Someone else is doing it. I can follow. So we're going to talk about that as the show goes on. Also, we're going to discuss the biggest news worldwide. And yes, the Olympics came to an end. But the fact that Lionel Messi held a very tearful press conference yesterday. He is saying goodbye to Barcelona after spending his entire career there. Expectation is he'll sign with PSG. But we're going to talk about the ramifications of this, not just in the sporting world, but what it means when a guy leaves after so long and is this idea big of players spending their whole career with one team does that happen can that happen anymore it's tough it's tough loyalty is uh it's fickle yeah it's not often a two-way street so we're going to talk about that. Anyways, uh, coming up next, though, Bick and I are going to get into our top five moments of these Olympics. If you've got your best moments of these games, text them 650-650-969-60. Coming up next, we'll discuss that on Rintoul and Sermon with Bick Nazarin for Scott Rintoul. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Uh, Bick, I like how Greg listens to the show, and I know he was in on the conversation, but... Puts a little Our Lady Peace. Yes, the first concert I ever went to, (laughs) Our Lady Peace. Back at the old Winnipeg Arena. Ever been to Winnipeg? No, the furthest uh, east I've gone is Regina. Really? Yeah. We need to get you like a little bit more exploring the rest. Although I will say this, it's like... Sorry, the furthest furthest east in Canada I've gone is... If you've been to Regina, probably don't need to go to Winnipeg. Oh, no, don't say that. No, honestly, it's a better city now. If you get a chance to go back in the winter, which really sucks because it's like minus 40, so why would you? Mm -hmm. But honestly, going to a Jets game at MTS Place, it's pretty cool. Uh, The downtown is a lot more revitalized from when I lived there. I have not lived in Winnipeg for 14 years, so uh, 
yeah, it's uh, it's a little bit better. Toronto's ama- I love Toronto. People like crap on Toronto because it's you know it's the whole stigma that comes yeah. around. We're the center of the universe, but it's actually a really p- cool town. I will say, Montreal. Like if you ever get a chance to go to Montreal, well, everyone's there favorite, right now. Favorite city in North America. Randy Janda was just there. Murph and Murph's there for uh, Dan Ten- Murphy, yeah. Sportsnet's uh, Vancouver reporter. He is there covering the National Bank Open tennis. Is tournament. he covering it or is he just there on holiday? No, no, he's actually doing oh, play okay. by play. Right. Yeah, he does it every year. All so right. they are back after a year off. We'll talk about that. Uh, he looked very casual, so I wasn't sure if he was working. Well, I don't actually know if he's going to actually have any on camera. It's just, you know, they send a Murph in the booth there and go. there's no camera action of him there. So, yes, everyone's in Montreal. I will recommend if anyone has not gone to Montreal, go experience it. Old Montreal is just it's as close as you're going to get to Europe in North America. This text comes in. Winnipeg is just dirty. Well, <laughs> come on. I will say this. Don't go in April. Because the snow's melted, and unlike in Vancouver, Calgary will understand about this. Yeah. Um, salt and sand. Yeah. On the on the roads, right? So when the snow starts melting, it's and before they clean the streets, it's like a nightmare. Like especially if you want to try and keep your cars clean, like it's just, just gross. Oh. Just that yeah. lower rim. Just that. Well, no, it's it's probably because of all the potholes and the and the uh, puddles everywhere. It's going to be your entire car. So, uh, yeah. If you want any travel tips to Winnipeg, I will give them <laughs> to you. The Vicky, tourism board. Well, <laughs> as I said, I think the first thing I said was uh, don't go. Yeah. So I don't think they want me as their reverse psychology for now, Winnipeg. Now I want to go even more. My my building had a wet paint sign up, and I I stood there waiting for the elevator, staring at the wet paint sign. I was like, I really. Hamperin? Yeah, yeah, I just really want to do it. And then the elevator came and I had to jump in. There you go. Uh, Okay, so uh, it's Rintoul and Sermon, Karen Sermon, Vic Nazar, and for Scott Rintoul. We were talking about the Olympics off the top of the show because you and I both got into it at least when we could watch it. Uh, Mm -hmm. Kudos just to CBC. I think I'm I'm allowed to say kudos to them because they literally did 23 hours of programming. Every day for what, 18 days? They had a half an hour news, maybe an hour because I think they had Coronation Street on for half an hour. Which you know you have to give you got to give people their Coronation Street, uh, but I mean to be able to do that for that many straight days and showing replays, but also telling storytelling uh, throughout the Olympics, it was pretty incredible to see. So if you missed something overnight, chances were you were going to get to see the replay at some point during the day. But you and I have our top five moments of these Olympics, and we're or from Canada's point of view, and they could be on the court achievements, they could be something we heard, something that was tweeted, anything that we found was very compelling from these Olympics, and so we're going to do, just go one and one. So Vic, you can go first, what was your number five, because I'll give you the first, because you are the uh, guest today. So, uh, yeah, I'm going off the, uh, a bit off the board here, it's a non-athletic accomplishment, uh, so on my phone, as far as Twitter goes, my mobile notifications are turned on for like Elliot Friedman and Adam Schefter, that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the big insiders in the sports. I had to turn them on for Penny Alexiak because she was just dropping fire every time she hits send. I was like, I, I need some Penny Alexiak energy in my own Twitter game. So uh, every one of her tweets were, were, were gold medal worthy. She called out a teacher that told her she probably could give up swimming. And then, of course, Twitter being Twitter. Obviously, she got some pushback on that being, oh, you hate teachers and blah, blah, blah. She, she can't like, hear anything with the gold medals out of her ears. <laughs> well. She had to give some, well, I love teachers. My sister's a teacher. Just this one inspired me to go forward. But she did show, show some, sorry, throw some shade towards said teacher. And if I'm that teacher, I'm probably thinking, hey, good on me. I'm the one yeah. that got her to win Olympic medals. And now she's the all-time greatest Canadian Olympian of all time, seven medals overall. So The teacher's face when she read the tweet should be a, or when he, uh, should be a 
heritage moment in Canada. Like, <laughs> like put that there on that. I, I want video of that moment. My number five is actually the same thing. It's off the. It's not on the actual court or an achievement. It was Sydney Pickram's incredible, raw, hilarious, unfiltered <laughs> comments because. She's like, I know I'm on live television, or at least there's a live mic in front of me. Yeah. I don't care. It was her first Olympic medal. And remember, she swam the breaststroke portion of the race in the 4x100 individual medley. And everyone else on that team, Kylie Moss and Maggie McNeil and Penny Alexic, had all won medals in these Olympics, if not prior to. And this was her first one. So she's so excited. It's the third leg. She's watching Penny come home for a chance at a medal. And she was asked what she felt. And she's like, I was absolutely bleeping myself <laughs> I'm not gonna sugarcoat it I thought it was like the quote of the games because don't we all have that moments we're just like oh my god I'm about to win an Olympic medal I mean we don't all have those moments because we're not all Olympic athletes but there's these moments where hey I was watching Canada win or the gold in women's soccer and you're thinking to yourself oh my god this is gonna happen and bad words go through your head and you try and, you know, avoid them on air, but she didn't, and she was raw. I loved it. I thought it was just kind of, yes, kid, enjoy your moment. <laughs> for sure. For sure. And look, like, we, we talk a lot about, uh, you know, uh, athletes and, and them being varnished and very polished, and they know how to just give a quote and get out. This was, uh, you know, we, we attach ourselves to authenticity, mm -hmm. and, and we want to see those authentic moments. Uh, for me, like Damien Warner. Number four. Number four for okay. me. Uh, you know, just talking about relatability as we were with Donovan Bailey, it's easy to picture in your mind, hey, world's fastest mm -hmm. human, you know, world's best athlete, considering the scope of some of the events, you know, we don't necessarily associate ourselves to decathlon being this hype event, but then you think of, hey, pulling that, actually pulling that off, it's something Canada hasn't been able to say, and, and doing it in the manner in which he did, 9,000 points and all that sort of mm -hmm. stuff. That one stands out as like, oh, we're going to talk about that years from now. And I think, you know, as, you know, five, ten years go on, if you ask me ten years from now, re-rank these moments, I think we'll appreciate it more as it goes forward. As history moves forward. I'm going to he's up a little higher on my list, so I'll give mm -hmm. my explanation a little bit later in this list. But mine were first for Canada. First time Canada captured medals in judo. We end up getting two of them. Catherine Boschman Pinard and Jessica Kim. Kate won bronze each of those events. Uh, first time Canada captured a medal in weightlifting. Maude Chiron got gold. I mean, we, these are the events that we don't necessarily see too much about or don't get the limelight. Mm -hmm. But these are athletes that are doing first for Canada. First time a Canadian won a medal in a distance race on the track. Mohamed, the 5,000 meters. It's a huge race internationally. And he gets silver, avenging his fourth from Rio. Bronze in softball. We almost forget about that because that happened literally like, what, day three of the actual Olympics because they had the first pitch prior to the Olympics actually starting. The early medals get washed away a bit. They do. They do. So it's like I want to just throw some love to these to those ladies and Laurent Vincent Lapointe. She won silver in the first ever women's C200 meter sprint event in the Olympics. We all know about her testing positive, but she actually didn't take a banned substance. It was her boyfriend and then lied about it and then eventually came truthful and she was able to get a olympic medal two olympic medals actually she won in the duo as well so for me that was the number four for number three for you Bick. uh the canadian women's soccer winning gold now i'm cheating here i'm separating them beating the americans which i'll, I'll <laughs> tell you if it's one or two in a moment uh but winning gold yeah. uh massive and obviously i've ranked the, them beating the americans a bit higher and for those that were listening a couple of weeks ago like i was geeked up for that match i don't know if i felt so that you level set your of alarm? Oh, yeah. Or did you stay up? Uh, no, I set my alarm. Okay. Uh, I was 
I'm kind of a, a night owl anyway, so I got like an hour and a half worth of sleep, but yeah. like I set my alarm for that one. But the, them winning gold to me, and, and maybe it should be higher, but the other ones I have here are also very worthy as well. But like what we were just talking about earlier, you never thought you'd say international Canadian soccer or winning a championship, wow. a gold medal, whatever it is. We never thought we'd say that in our lifetime, but obviously the Canadian women's program has made so much progress mm-hmm. over what, 25 years, even longer you can say. They, they, they continue to strive for excellence and it gets capped off by this moment. So to me, you know, the, the moment itself, it, it's more of a, a longevity uh, vote as well because it goes back, you know, to, to, to decades of other people that help build this program. Uh, because it was in these Olympics and because they, they took the path of beating the Americans, mm-hmm. I thought beating the Americans was a bigger moment. We'll get to that in a minute. But uh, for me, the gold medal for them. Yeah, and I'll and I'll say off the top, just so we have, I I did put that as number one for me, mm-hmm. and the reason I did just because of the gravity of winning an international medal in soccer. Now, like you know, to be fair, I, I'm separating them. That's fine. But but the Canadian women's is probably the biggest story of the Olympics. We do the same thing with the men's hockey mm-hmm. team and the women's hockey team. Like that's the sport at the Winter Olympics that we care about. This was one that uh, because they they won, it stood out because it's a team sport because of the the high profileness of it too. And yes, there was many moments in that game where you could probably say were your favorite moments, and you could say post game were your favorite moments. Seeing Christine Slinkair get that gold medal by uh, I think it was Jesse Fleming that put it around her neck, and I mean that's just an incredible moment. But for me. Did you see when the camera panned to Kadisha Buchanan and Christine Sinclair down on their knees? And Christine Sinclair has Kadisha's, I believe it's her hands, her face in her hands. Mm-hmm. And she's like, we just won an Olympic gold medal. We won a gold medal. Like basically trying to convince herself, convince Kadisha. Like we finally got this achievement. That'll always stand out in my memory. I also have Penny Alexiak and Andre DeGrasse setting records. That's my number three story. I combine them together because Penny Alexiak is now the greatest, most decorated Canadian Olympian of all time. And Andre DeGrasse is the most decorated track athlete of all time. Penny, of course, can improve in that in Paris in three years. We'll have to see if DeGrasse goes. He's a little bit older than Penny is, and we all know how training for these sports and how younger generations just come on and come on oh, yeah. to be faster. So we'll see what happens with him. Maybe he'll run in like a relay event or something. So like I that. feel bad because uh, Andre DeGrasse didn't make my list, <laughs> and, and, and part of it is is you know part of it is like it's okay. We we seen him medal before, the, the the star power and and moments from for me is for the Olympics are all about you know, people that we discover over the course of these two weeks and the stories we learn about. And just minutes ago, we were talking about, hey, early in the Olympics, moments get washed away. Mm-hmm. The Canadian women's eight rowers, for me, that reaction of them in the boat, jumping up and down, and their reaction, you know, their their, their post-race interview, and them being that, that medal that, you know, it, to be honest, like the, the story of the Canadian Olympics was the Canadian women. Yes. And to me, embodied by the early success of all those medals, and these rowers were the poster for it mm-hmm. and, and seeing them react. And, and that to me was a, a, a chilling, awesome moment for the Canadian Olympics. My number two was uh, Damien Warner. I've said my love for him and what he did over the last uh, week of this show. It's the fact that it's not only just sprint events or it's not over just throwing mm-hmm. events or jumping events. It's the fact that you have to be great at say five or six of them, like absolutely great at them. And then you have to be good at say three of them and then hold your own in a couple of them right like the the overall training that has to go into being this and oh yeah guess what shout out to the 30 year olds he's 31 years old he did it over everybody else who was younger than him so the fact he's the oldest competitor in the decathlon walks away with gold in 
record-breaking fashion to a point, fourth ever person to hit the 9,000 mark. I thought it was actually incredible. And your number one story was Canada beating the United States. In soccer. I, I said this before the match, that it was more important to me that the Canadian women's go through America. I, look, I, I know they had a tough game against the Dutch, and it's like, oh, they could have got a weaker path to the gold medal. No, no, I wanted the hardest road possible. I wanted to play the Americans. And it was worth risking losing gold to get to beat the Americans than it was to, to just get an easier path and win gold because of what happened nine years ago. This was nine years in the making of mm -hmm. stewing over the worst call we've seen in sports history of... You know, six-second delay and then the handball. All the things, that screw job in London. Like, getting revenge and sealing the, you know, the era of uh, American women's soccer. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, because it gets backdoored with the gold medal, it feels even better. You know, it was really fun to see uh, was when Canada got their gold medals. And they're standing on the podium. And, of course, Sweden's there getting yeah. their silver because they played in the game. But the Americans who played the day before... They had to come back out and were on the podium and they had to stand there and watch Canada's national anthem, mm -hmm. you know, be played, that Canadian flag be raised above the Americans. I thought that was pretty, it was pretty fun to watch. For sure. And I, I it looked like the Americans hung around. I think a lot of them wanted to say nice things to Christine Sinclair mm -hmm. and, and that team. But yeah, that was a cool moment as well. But getting to beat the Americans, that was awesome to me. That was like... That 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 made up for 2012, and I'm still like my blood still boils, but I've I've been you can temper I've it. been calm and I've been serene since last Monday. It's like all right, they did it. It's you, over. You can put the gold medal, like you said, yeah. over your ears. And uh, <laughs> the Canadians are the gold medal 2021 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games in women's soccer. It's incredible. I can't believe I'm saying that. Hey, Greg, let's get to what they're saying. Coming up in about 45 minutes, we're going to go to Toronto and speak to Arden Zwelling, Sportsnet's Blue Jay analyst. Uh, Blue Jay is coming off a pretty impressive big homestand. And I say homestand in the sense that it actually was at home <laughs> at Rogers Centre, not in Buffalo, not in Dunedin. Yes, 9-2 and two on this homestand before they head out on the road for nine in a row. A couple out west, then they go to D.C. for a couple of games. But this one of the stories of this homestand was George Springer at the dish. And... We saw what he did yesterday in hitting that, what was it, the eighth mm -hmm. inning, the three-run shot to put the Jays up 9-8 late after they were down 7-2 at one point in this game. And Springer spoke after the game, and he said, you know, this team is finally starting to click. You know, as a team, um, you know, we haven't clicked um, at the same time on each each end of the ball. And, and you know, I, I, I think, you know, this is a – obviously a huge homestand for us um you know but you know we got to go out west and 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 continue to play the way that we've been playing and you know we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens you never know what one game could do you know what one game could be the difference be you know between the playoffs and and not the playoffs so you know every game is huge now um it doesn't matter who it's against you know obviously it's great to um you know come out on top against them you know it's a again it's an unbelievable ball club so you know it's is uh a huge win for us today, for sure. And he's right, Vic. Like, at times this season, we could say the Blue Jays' record really wasn't indicative of what this team is because they haven't been able to put it all together. You know, either the bullpen's blowing mm -hmm. games late, which happened quite a bit early on this season, or the bats couldn't get going, or Springer was hurt, or someone else was just in this lineup just wasn't able to find their swing. Like, right now, it just does appear. And I know... Hunjin Ryu had a pretty terrible start yesterday, probably the worst start of his Blue Jays uh, season, but 
you take out that, it seems right now just everything seems to be firing at one time. The starting pitching, the bullpen, and the bats. And they needed this. Uh, in the first half, there was a lot of you know three-game winning streaks and then followed by some losing streaks. And, and it was always one step forward, two step back, or you know one step forward, one step back. It, it was a lot of start and stop. Now they're starting to run some mm-hmm. games here. You, know, you, you just come off of a five-game winning streak. You pick up a loss, I know, but this team you know, is a young team, and some of the mistakes we've seen are young mistakes. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes they're a bit volatile. The bats go cold and bats go hot. But if they start putting this together, it gets really interesting. So since June 19th, they have a 6.43 win percentage. That's tops in the American League, and that's still only got them fourth in the division, mm-hmm. and still three games out in the wild card race. But here's the thing: if they can keep it going over the final 52 games of the season, that's a high win percentage. But if they can, and which they probably need to do, that's north of 90 wins this season and that likely gets you at least a wild card game if not hosting a wild card game I think the division's probably out of reach is at seven back of Tampa Bay right now they really didn't gain any ground on Tampa Bay well they, they're eight and two in their last 10 and Tampa Bay is also going eight and two in the so last 10 yeah. yes they did not gain any ground on Tampa Bay uh we're going to talk to Aaron Zwelling about this because I do want to ask like if he thinks the division is reachable for these Blue Jays or does that kind of seem a little too far-fetched and it's just the wild card game NFL training camps are well underway I know you're super stoked for it so am I I did not watch my Cowboys play the Steelers in the Hall of Fame game but All the rest of the preseason games are getting underway this week. But Patrick Mahomes did speak because, remember, they're coming off a Super Bowl win and then a Super Bowl loss. And he talked about the lessons he learned from last Super Bowl, which was that loss. Yeah, I think you look back on that day and you have to learn from it. I think it's the biggest thing. Um, When you get beat like that uh, by obviously a really good football team, um, um, you have to look back on that and and see that you can't come not 100% ready to play every single day. And we had injuries here and there, but everyone has injuries at that time of year. Um, and for us to not go out there and be able to even get in the end zone at all, um, it, it's something that, that will haunt me kind of for the rest of my career. But uh, you learn, you get better from it, and try to make sure you're ready, you're ready to go. And whenever you get an, another chance at it, you don't uh, uh, go out and show out like you did that time. So Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs are ESPN football's power indexes projected winner of the Super Bowl this year, and they're projected to face, guess who? Tampa Bay in the Super Bowl yet again. Really bold choices there by ESPN. (laughs) Well, when you look at the metrics that they put together, (laughs) it's not just guys picking. There's actually like a mathematical thing that goes into this power index. I'm not going to get into it. My math, people know from the show, is... Not good on the best of days. Look, so. I'll, I'll, I'll be a coward on this, too. I'm doing my own power ranks. Kansas City. And, uh, and, and Tampa Bay and Kansas City were one and two. Right, exactly. So it's uh, Patrick Mahomes probably he's probably pretty motivated, though, to have a bounce-back season. They've upgraded that offensive line, which we saw was an issue in the Super Bowl and in the NFC Championship game, which he did get hurt in. And quickly, before we go to break, I wanted to get this one in because Peyton Manning went into the Hall of Fame this weekend, one of many athletes, NFL athletes, to go into the Hall of Fame, and he took a bit of a jab at his good friend Tom Brady. Next year, acceptance speeches will probably shrink to four minutes. And speaking of rivals, my good friend Tom Brady is here tonight. By the time he is inducted... By the the time Tom Brady is inducted in his first year of eligibility in the year 2035, he'll only have time to post his acceptance speech on his Instagram account. 
I love the jabs at him. I do think, I like the fact that they're friends. Mm-hmm. And they've obviously been friends for a little while. I'm not sure how much they were in their playing days, but obviously, you know, respect as the careers go on, longevity, all that kind of stuff. How many Super Bowls does Peyton Manning have if Tom Brady's never... The Tom Brady wow. or the Patriots. I'd say pro- at least three more chances to have Super Bowls. Oh, at least three more chances. Yeah, I might even say like six. Like yeah. like six total rings. Payton's uh, probably always thinking like, yeah, I got the two rings. I, I imagine, imagine every if? secondary great athlete has that moment. Like I'm sure Hakeem Olajuwon is like, boy, I probably should have won five, but Michael Jordan existed. And, and, and Charles just like, Barkley. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, I, think, I think so many great athletes are, are probably just like that. I, I think even like... Rafa Nadal and, and Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer. I'm I'm sure how all three of them are thinking, if one of these guys wasn't around, like, would I have 25? Would I have 30? I mean, honestly, when it comes to men's tennis, we could talk about any of the guys yeah. that have come up. Milos Raonic. Yeah. Andy Roddick. All these guys probably. Andy Murray. Yep. He he has two. Oh, he has two Wimbledons, maybe a couple. Yeah, I think it's the US Open. Yeah. The US Open, too. But yeah, you could say their careers would be definitely different if not for the big three. Someone just texts in 650, 650. Hello, CFL? Anyone? Anyone? Yes, we're going to talk about that next because Donovan Bennett is going to join us. We did mention off the top that the BC Lions and Calgary Stampeders opened the season with a loss, as did the Edmonton Elks. Winnipeg Blue Bombers and Saskatchewan Rough Riders are the teams in the West starting with a win in week one. We're going to get into that with Donovan Bennett, plus some Olympus talk and maybe a little NBA chat as well. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Pick Nazar in for Scott Rintoul. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. This will probably be the one and only time that Ba Ba Bye by NSYNC is on Rintoul and Sermon. I don't think Scotty would allow this to happen. Come on, Scott. I mean, it's not up to him, necessarily. No. It's up to uh, Greg, who's up in the show. Uh, He's killing I, it. I just wanted to see Bick do the dance. He says like he knew it by thing? heart. I mean, it's been a while, man. Okay, so it's like the head bobs, and then you do the fist pumps, and then you do the arm swing as you twist. And you got to do the little walk while you do the fist pump, Well, too. yeah. I mean, like, it's that's... all in the hips. Like, that's implied. <laughs> I'll let you guys do you. Uh, <laughs> yes, this is uh, Rock 101. Insane. <laughs> um, no, yes. Anyways, it's Rintoul and Sermon, Karen Sermon and Vic Nazar in for Scott Rintoul, who will be back on Monday. I will be gone on vacation for one week, and then we'll be back in the hosting chair, I think, uh, August 24th, something like that. It'd be a month that we have hosted together. So we'll see. We'll get the... <laughs> The rust off the. <laughs> I love this industry. The chemistry, right? Yeah, exactly. So we'll be back in studio together. Then we're gonna. Yeah, because like joined... I, I haven't. I haven't done a show with the the boss in two and a half, three weeks. Oh, we know. He's mentioned it if one or once or twice on the show, <laughs> Bick. If you haven't been listening. Of course, yeah. Bick and the Boss follows Rintoul and Sermon on yeah. Sixnet, Sportsnet six fifty, uh, one to three. Pacific time. Uh, yeah, so I think the boss has been doing it by himself. I think he's doing it one more week by himself. Is that, or are you getting back on the uh, show tomorrow think, with him? No, Wednesday is when I'm, we're oh. finally back together. Okay. But it's been, yeah, three weeks. Do you miss him? Yeah. Don't answer that. A little bit. Uh, a little bit. We're going to be joined by Donovan ben- Bennett here momentarily. We're going to talk a little CFL action. We're going to talk a little Olympics, a little NBA, because uh, the <laughs> if you care, uh, the Summer League has gotten underway. The Toronto Raptors uh, played their first game, I think, Vic, uh, Scotty yesterday. Barnes. Scotty Barnes Killing under it. contract. Of course, he is the fifth overall, no, fourth overall pick in the NBA draft. Jalen Suggs went fifth overall to the Magic. Could have gone to the uh, Toronto Raptors. But we'll talk to Donovan Bennett about that. want to talk a little CFL. I don't know if you got to watch some of the games over the weekend, but every game had fans. 
and we saw it in Winnipeg. It was not a quite full stadium, but Winnipeg did have a rule that everybody in that stadium had to be double vaccinated. That's why you saw no masks for fans in the stands. I had a couple of friends, family members that were there. They said it was kind of surreal to be in an environment like that. We've seen fans in Montreal for the Stanley Cup, but very spread out, very minimal in a big arena in the Bell Centre. But this was the first time in Canada, Bic, that we have seen over four games the fact that you are seeing packed crowds, lots of fans, uh, no masks in some of these stadiums, and it was a little jarring at first, and then I thought, okay, I'm excited to go. For sure. I think it's going to be like that for everyone. Like Even in Vancouver and Calgary, when you get to go to Canucks and Flames games, uh, games again, it's going to be that initial trepidation of like, uh, okay, then the game's going to start, you're going to get into it. Like anything, like we've already talked, that escape nature that, per- mm-hmm. that it provides, someone's going to throw a big hit, someone's going to complete a big pass, and it's like... I'm in. Let's do this. Back to normalcy. As normal, on every Monday, we are joined by Donovan with Sportsnet. Donovan, good morning, good afternoon to you out in uh, the East Coast. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Good, thank you. Donovan, when we chatted last week, you said right at the end of our conversation, you were hoping to talk about a gold for Canada's women's soccer team. We get to talk about that today. When you look at the win and you go back and just you're thoughts on watching it happen but what do you think this means for Canada Oof, I mean, it gave us something to celebrate it gave us uh, an ability to beat our rivals uh, the Americans and semis and then you know, beat a team in Sweden that really had our number over the last couple of years to draw is the best outcome that we had in this iteration of our national team and hopefully you know we could have a knock-on effect and keep that momentum going uh, it, right into the Women's World Championships hockey, which are coming up soon in Calgary, and keep the good vibes going right into the Winter Olympics, which are six months away. It's crazy to even think about that. But in terms of the the gold for Canada, I just think about two things, and they're somewhat related but somewhat separate. One, it's an affirmation for Christine Sinclair. She obviously was the most decorated soccer player that we had produced, men or women, as a leading goal scorer in the history uh, of the international game, men or women, still at a point where she's starting for our national side. But she's starting alongside so many players that looked up to her, were inspired by her, are playing the sport because of her, um, many of which uh, were really influential in getting her her first ever gold medal so i don't want to say the passing of the torch because i'm not putting her you know out to pasture just yet but certainly you know there is great symmetry in young woman after young woman stepping up to the spot placing penalty kicks perfectly getting a gold medal for someone that they watched do that very thing in their formative years and when you look at not just on this team, but in the youth ages coming up, the amount of talented players that we have on the female side and all over the park, in the back end, goaltenders galore, exciting front players um, who can finish in the final third. It's really exciting what this national team might look like well after Christine Sinclair is, is playing. And so the growth of the game is continuing and it's in a great place. And now just continues to add fuel to that fire that we need a domestic league Mm -hmm. in this country for our young players that are female to not have to go abroad, uh, that not 
they can go abroad and play professionally or get a scholarship. But if they choose to stay in Canada, that's a viable option. We have it for the men. Now we need it for the women as well. Yeah, and Stephanie Labe used that gold medal to just emphasize that exact fact in an interview after winning it, uh, Donovan, saying, like, look, we need to invest in a domestic league here in Canada. But I wanted to go back to your point of kind of a passing of the torch, because when you look at who was on the pitch for Canada in the added extra time and then who took the kicks like the three players that scored for Canada in the shootout were Julia Grosso, uh, Jesse Fleming and Deanne Rose and they're under the age of 23 and then you look at other players that were on the pitch Vanessa Giles how important she was at just what five caps I think coming into these Olympics for Canada and Jordan Heidema was on the pitch for Canada uh, replacing Christine Sinclair late in that game but what does that say about Bev Priestman and her ability to understand look for this program to go forward, it is the younger players right now that she has to have in there in critical times. Well, she made some tough decisions. And let's be clear, Beth Priestman herself is young and still growing in the job. And there's many questions about, even though she was an understudy um, in, in the program beforehand, whether or not we really want to hand over a team so talented to someone who hasn't been a manager at this level before, and she answered all of those questions, and she really got every decision throughout the way correct. And she made some big decisions. Sophie Schmidt was a big part of this team, and although she was on it, she was really on the periphery, sticking with Steph Labe instead of Kaylin Sheridan, a young keeper that's been really pushing her. So she didn't just stubbornly say, I'm sticking with the veterans. People have been in big matches before, uh, obviously, like a Christine Sinclair and a Desiree Scott. And she didn't stubbornly say it's going to be an entire youth movement and Jay Riviere is going to start and play all of the matches. She found a nice middle and made the decision that made sense for the player and for the group. And uh, it, it does, you know, give full confidence moving forward, given, you know, the amount of young players that watched the national team win a bronze nine years ago now. Uh, and obviously they followed that up with a bronze and now they are part of the fold to win this gold and potentially, you know, hopefully capture a, a world cup. Yeah. The, the, aside from Christine Sinclair and Desiree Scott, Steph Labbe is, is still in her prime, but the majority of this team hasn't reached their prime yet. I think that's the most exciting thing. Ashley Lawrence's best football is ahead of her. Kadisha Buchanan, although she's the best central defender in the world, her best football is still ahead of her. Julia Grosso, for sure her best football is ahead of her. Same thing for Janine Becky. And, and so we've got depth in terms of players that are all going to be continuing to peak and are ascending at the right time. And we have a manager that is bold enough to make some brave decisions in terms of her setup, in terms of her formation, in terms of who she's trusting in the big moments. And yeah, I mean, a, a, lot, a lot of the people she trusted – uh, in these Olympics, you know, the last Olympics weren't old enough to drink alcohol. Uh, and, and they were certainly celebrating with some drinks after they got it done. So it's so fun to see. Donovan Bennett's uh, joining us here, uh, Sportsnet's Do It All Maestro. Uh, we were talking about uh, moments for these uh, the Canadians in these Olympics. And Donovan, I, I'm a sucker for revenge. So I put the Canadian women beating the Americans higher up on my list than them actually winning gold. 
Is that fair, or am I just uh, too much a sucker for revenge? Oof. I mean, that was... Anything after that win seemed like it was gravy, right? It seemed like it was dessert, because the motto was, change the color of the medal. That was secured once you got through with that. But I don't know, man. The drama of ending an Olympic gold medal match on penalties and being behind on penalties and having to come back and asking your keeper to not once but twice come up with outstanding saves. I I don't know if there's anything that can beat that. So I was maybe more nervous watching the semifinal against the United States because, you know, when they sub on three of the best uh, attacking players in the world and you have to, you know, park the bus and hold on to the lead, you know, that was tough to watch. I enjoyed the final uh, much more because I knew at the very least uh, they were going home with a bronze, even though I was up and out of my seat for the penalties. But you know, quite frankly, it was such a joyous day that I was just hoping the match would get done soon so I could quickly get to the four by one. So it was it was a moment where I was trying to see how well I could use two screens at the same time. Uh, but I, I think the moment that I'll remember is uh, Grosso running to the rest of the team after she slotted home and and I me taking a look and making sure did that go in did the keeper get a piece oh yeah it's in the back of the net and before I celebrated and just the looks at their faces and then the decision in real time do we run at the goal scorer do we run at the goalkeeper who's been our MVP um those are the scenes that I'll remember and those are the uh the photos that I immediately tried to capture and put on my IG just to be a small part of the celebration. Donovan, in the grand scheme of these Summer Olympic Games, do you have a lasting memory of these games? Your takeaway from it? That our females are a force. I don't know, really, if there could be another takeaway. I have some small ones, right? We had a open conversation, maybe for the first time ever, about mental health in sport, thanks to Simone Biles. Again, a young female with agency leading that conversation. I love the track, and I love that two guys that I know personally and are rude for and are great guys and, like me, are young dads, were able to get it done. And Andre DeGrasse winning the, you know, three medals and a gold in 200. Damian Warner, like I was literally running with both of them down the back straight in, in Tokyo as they were picking off people and running them down into history but we have to give the ladies their flowers 18 of our 24 medals won by women or women's teams uh in in that making even more history quinn the first ever openly transgender medalist and why not make it a gold medal to make that history whether it was the pool or the pitch or open bodies of water our women dominated, and historically we would dominate, but it would be in the Winter Olympics or it would be in sports that you can do at a cottage in Canada, canoeing or kayaking. We'd win medals if they were somehow related to water. And now we've got medals on the track. We've got medals on the pitch. We've got medals in cycling. We, we've diversified our medal count, and much of that, is to the women in our country and the infusion of resources and high-level coaching at the grassroots level for women's sport in our country. Uh, and I just hope that people 
see this as a viable source of entertainment and investment and that we continue to do it more after these games. Donovan Bennett joining us on Rintoul and Sermon. Nabik Nazar filling in for Scott with Karen Sermon. Uh, CFL opens up week one. Uh, a couple of close games, uh, albeit if the scoreboard was lying in, in Saskatchewan and BC, but uh, BC and Calgary picking up L's. Uh, what was your uh, primary takeaways from what we saw in week one? It was better football than I thought, to be honest. I was expecting no preseason. Mm-hmm. You've been off for 620-some-odd days. The league at the best times is super fluid with players coming in and out of it and free agency going from team to team to team. And I thought still defenses are certainly ahead of offenses. Offenses were good to start for first drives. We saw Hamilton and Toronto march the field on first drives when those plays are charted and you you know all week what plays are going to be running early in the games. And then after that got a little bit wonky, but for the, most part, we didn't see a lot of bad penalties. We didn't see a lot of fumbles or sloppy football. It was pretty good. If you were just sitting down, you wouldn't know that it was week one after the better part of a pandemic. The other thing that is the biggest takeaway is, man, this is a quarterback-driven league, and that's two things. One, you need your quarterback to play well. Two, you need your quarterback to be healthy. And I think the overlying question that is going to hover over this entire season, especially because it's a truncated one, it's just 14 games, is is your quarterback playing well and or healthy? And whether it was the musical chairs at quarterback between Michael Riley and Canadian Nathan Rourke, who I think played well in a very tough situation, whether it was you know, people trying to see his boldly by Mitchell's arm back all the way, is he feeling good? whether it was Zach Claro's running for his life, but still, you know, undefeated as a Winnipeg Blue Bomber, the pressure now on Jeremiah Masoli, now that they've got off to a slow start and Dane Evans is, is his backup, you know, Macbeth, Bethel Thompson playing well, was Nick Arbuckle not able to start because of his nagging injuries. I'm going to be watching for what does the depth chart look like at the quarterback position? What's that completion percentage look like? Because those are going to be the tells in terms of who's playing well and ultimately who ends up hoisting the Grey Cup in December. Donovan, can you wrap your head around anything that we did see surrounding the quarterback situation from the BC Lions? Because all understanding was Michael Riley, he didn't practice all week. Nathan Rourke took first team snaps, but he was questionable, but likely to play is what we were told. And then up to coin toss. Then he said the best situation for this team is that Nathan Rourke goes. He seemed pretty surprised and good on the kid for, you know, it was a tough first half for him, but then he did show some signs late in the half and then late in the game when he came back in. But do you have any sense of kind of how to explain what went down with the Lions and Riley? Well, what adds to this conversation, and it was one on social media immediately and throughout the game, is the fact that we have professional NFL-style injury reports Mm -hmm. in the CFL for the first time in 2021, which is not about transparency or us doing our job in the media. It's all about betting and gambling. And it somewhat undermines that if the information that you have based off those injury reports and that depth chart end up not being the case. And there's a long history in the CFL of walking into a press box, being handed a depth chart, watching the first snap and seeing something vastly different than what you've been given. But I think this is actually a different case. I, I think I understand why people see the causation, but I don't, I, I don't think there's actually a correlation. I think this is 
down to a couple things. I think uh, Riley's right elbow hasn't been good, and they shot it up throughout the week. And how he felt with it shot up was good enough for him to be able to manage the pain and play. And they shot it up pregame, and it didn't feel right, and he couldn't play. They decided to shoot it up again at halftime, and it felt better until it didn't. And so that'll be something that we manage and watch throughout the year. And I think the other piece of this is the most expensive employee for the BC Lions is Mike Riley. So ultimately, it's really important to protect him. But ultimately, he's got a lot of power in making the decision on whether or not he gets to play and gets to give some return on investment. So I do think the coaching staff found out that Mike Riley wasn't going to play and found out that Mike Riley was going to play when Mike Riley decided he wasn't going to play and then he was going to play. And so the question now is moving forward, given the concerns and given the fact that this is a long layoff, you've had health issues with this quarterback and he's starting the season with less than full bill of health. How do you make sure that you give Nathan Rourke, who remembers a rookie, give him the ample reps throughout the week and build a game plan around him that makes sense for him specifically and not one that's made for Michael Riley to put him in a position to succeed? Because thinking that you're going to be able to just swap in and out quarterbacks based off how the elbow is feeling moments before kickoff, that isn't conducive to winning football. It isn't conducive to a young quarterback still finding his way as a professional to having much success. So I, I, I think you're right. I think given the fact that they were even still in that game is a small miracle. 194 yards, 10 of 18, two TDs, and unfortunately the two INTs. I, I think Rourke put some balls in a great spot, showed why he was such a highly sought-after pro- prospect, but I do think they're going to need to help him and be a little bit more certain with what they do with their quarterback reps throughout the week uh, if Riley's health is going to continue to be an issue. Hey, before we let you go, uh, a little bit up against the clock, but I did want to ask you about Scotty Barnes and his debut with the Raptors. You know, in basketball, there there is a certain element of how you carry yourself on the court kind of matters, and the the pick raised his raised eyebrows. But just after one game watching that, like the way he played, and again, it's, it's just summer league, and it, it's just one exhibition game. But like, I was blown away just the confidence he had on the court. Yeah, lots of confidence and lots of length, too. Mm-hmm. They were able to get to the basket in just a couple steps, was able to bother everything. He looked like a number four overall pick. And if you remove Jalen Suggs from the equation, and that's who people had their heart set on because he had such a great NCAA tournament, such a high-level prospect, and he was a ready-made solution for the fact that you were going to lose Kyle Lowry most likely in free agency, and just evaluate Scotty Barnes. Don't think about his career in the ACC at Florida State. Don't think about what his rating was going into college. Just evaluate him. Yeah, I think that he looked like a person that not early in his career, but eventually you could build a team around and that he, he looked in place, for, for lack of a better term. He looked like he belonged, and he looked like he was having a lot of fun. And, he, you know, are the Raptors going to challenge for a championship this season, no. But will they be fun to watch with all of the length and enthusiasm and youth and bounce that they have? 
yeah, they're going to be a lot of fun to watch. So I can't wait to see, you know, Malachi Flynn, who also looked really good in summer league, and Fred Van Vliet, and on the break, finding the literal Raptors on either side that he's playing with. But also Scotty Barnes is a great passer as well. He had a great left-hand throw-ahead pass himself. Um, and I'm looking forward to him playing some point forward, if you will, something that the Raptors did a lot with Pascal Siakam years ago when he was running the offense for the bench mob, I can see Scotty Barnes early in his career having a very similar role. So I think super early, and he's playing against most of the talent on the court that will not be NBA players. But I, I did like what I saw for him in, in limited minutes in his first outing. Hey, Donovan, thanks so much for joining us, as always, as you do on Mondays. Have a wonderful week. Enjoy week two of the CFL season. Lions taking on the Stampeders on Thursday night. Lots of eyes in our markets on that game, and we'll talk to you on Monday. Yeah, can't wait. It's a big one. Who's going to go 0-2? Right. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Thanks, Donovan. That's Donovan Bennett with Sportsnet. Uh, you can basically hit any topic with Donovan Bennett, and he will be very highly um engaged what we're talking about and he loves the CFL and he loves football and he's right like look week one oh and one not a big deal oh and two in a 14 game season you could probably overcome it but you don't want to start that way and yes the Lions and the Stampeders in Calgary on Thursday night we're up against it so we're gonna take a quick break coming back on the other side we're gonna talk a little Blue Jays baseball on Rintoul and Sermon Bick Nazar in for Scott Rintoul you're listening to Rintoul and Sermon all I got from that big was Springer, Springer, Springer. I don't know what the heck they were talking about, but it sounded like he did something good. Be less excited. <laughs> it's it's true when you have sports guys. Okay, of course, Rintoul and Sermon, Karen Sermon, Bick Nazar in for Scott Rintoul. But you hear goal calls in Spanish yep. or Italian. Uh, I don't know if I've really, really heard one in French, but I'm sure they just sounds the same. That was the TVA call of George Springer's home run yesterday that gave the Blue Jays the 9-8 win, or at least lead at that point in the game. It wasn't a walk-off home run, but there's something about the excitement and it not being in English language where you just yeah. like, it paints, without knowing what's happening, they're very able to paint a picture for you and just, okay, that was at least exciting. It's my plea to, to hockey, com- hockey commentators. You can do more than just, he shoots, he scores. You can do it just a little bit more. You can get a bit rowdy. You can do the old, you know, uh, you know, whenever Messi scores, it's always like jumping Jack Flash and all this sort of stuff, and you go crazy. You're more than welcome to do that. Well, when you don't understand the words, it's all about the emotion. Yes. Right? And you're just understanding the emotion. What and, is home run? Because, you know, yeah. when, when Montreal Canadiens play and they score, it's Lemoo, right? It, what's home run? I forget. I, I should know this, but yeah, I don't know. Home run in French. Googling on air. This there is we the go. Best segment this is best of... radio. My French is not up what it used to be. I should know at least the sports terms. You're right. Acuil? Acuil? Does that sound right? Is anyone French out there that can text us in and let me know? Can we replay that and see if he says it? Greg, you're yeah, right. yeah, we can play. We can play it again. This is if great you want. radio right here. This is great radio. Let's hear, let's hear if we can catch it. So Didn't get that. There was a, it's obviously yeah. called something else. Uh, <laughs> we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out before the show's over. <laughs> we'll get our French uh, francophones to text us. And uh, we're going to talk a little Blue Jays baseball because, yes, the Blue Jays, there's something to be said about home cooking. Oh, yeah. And being actually back at home. And, yes, I understand, you know, 
maybe a lot of them actually probably don't even have apartments in Toronto yet. I wouldn't imagine it. Because if they had them prior to the pandemic, they've probably given them up since then. So it's probably still a lot of living out of suitcases or living out of residence. That Springer's they... probably like owns a Motel 6 or a Motel 8 right now. Well, he could probably own a Hyatt at this point sure. with what he's getting paid. I, I, I was trying to be thrifty. <laughs> he's getting paid a lot of money, Vic. <laughs> a lot of money. Uh, but hey, back home. There's something about just being in front of your own fans. And yes, there were fans in Buffalo, and yes, there were fans in Dunedin, but they're not true Blue Jays fans. And you saw when they played the Yankees in Buffalo. It was 100% Yankees fans, mm-hmm. basically. It's like, okay, Northeast or Northwestern, Northeastern or Northwestern, New York State gets to go and see the Yankees play. They can't see him play, you know, because it's a little expensive to travel down to New York City. And it's like Steelers fans. They, they, they travel well, and, and the Yankees are always going to travel well, let alone in their own home state. So you play three games against Kansas City, a team that you sweep, which is probably a team you should beat and a team you should sweep. The Cleveland Indians, of course, they are, you know, they beat them 3-1. It's, again, a team you should beat, and the Red Sox. You think about this. At one point, they were leading the American League East, but they have been dwindling as of late, struggling, of course, with their starting pitching, and they take three of four from them, and they do it in pretty dramatic fashion. And we're going to talk a little Blue Jays baseball right now. Arden Zwelling from Sportsnet, a Blue Jay analyst, joins us right now. Arden, how are you this morning? I guess afternoon for you. How are you? Good, Karen. How's it going? We're doing pretty great. Thank you. You were at the games. Fans in the stands. Jays took advantage of it. They were 9-2 and two in those 11 games since being at the Rogers Center. What do you think the difference was of being at home? Well, I wish I could quantify it. You know, I, I wish that I could uh, – there was some sort of empirical data that I could use to say that the, the Blue Jays are deriving energy from it and they – uh, it can attribute X amount of benefit from, from being at home, and, and we can't, right, because it's intangible, and it's just an energy. It's just something that's in the air. Uh, but I think it's real, and I think that there, uh, there's there been a real impact on the Blue Jays' play just from being at home, and whether that's the certainty of knowing where your home games are going to be and not having this looming question of are we going to leave Dunedin for Buffalo? Are we going to be in Buffalo for the rest of the year? Will we be able to cross the border? That could be it. Certainly, it could be the 15,000 fans um, behind the the club every night showing support and cheering for them and, and just giving them a little bit of energy and, and a little bit of emotion with each pitch. Um, it could be not having games in Buffalo against the Red Sox where there are more Boston fans than there are Toronto fans. It could be the discomfort that the opposition feels because all of those fans are against them and uh, not on their side. I, I don't know. Like I said, I wish I could quantify it. And you would think that professional athletes, as motivated and driven as they are and then on an innate level, would perform well regardless of where the games take place. But it seems like there has been a very real intangible benefit to being at home. And I think it's contributed to that, that homestand we just witnessed. I do want to talk about yesterday's game because um, I, I was kind of watching at 7-2. It's like, all right, it hasn't gone really well. But when Vladdy hit that home run, and, and, and we'll get into the Springer one to, to cap the game off, but it did feel like a, a moment that you can say that will springboard the rest of the season. And they come back after that. But when Vladdy hit it, it felt like that belief was into the team. And we, we played a, a clip from Springer uh, earlier where he talked after the game of like, hey, this kind of feels like this team can get on a run. What does yesterday's game, I know it's tough in a, in a long season, but what does yesterday's game to you mean in the scope of a season? 
It, it's a big one. I mean, it's the, the biggest one until the next big one, right? And we're going to be doing a lot of biggest games of the season, I think, over the next six, seven weeks. And Blue Jays have 52 games remaining, so there's going to be a lot of junctures like this where, where we say, this is must win, this is the biggest game yet, this is the biggest series, this one means everything. And that's part of the final two months, the final stretch run of the baseball season in which your team is competitive. You're playing meaningful games in September. It's one of the best things as a baseball fan, you know, as media, as an observer, just as anybody around the sport, to see a team making a run late in the season. So, you know, you don't want to overstate how much Sunday's game meant, but winning that game against the Red Sox as opposed to losing it, there is a swing in, in the standings there. It does keep the Blue Jays closer in that wild card race at a time when you know, the Yankees and Oakland ahead of them have also been playing very well it takes one away from the red sox so obviously you're in a little bit of a tailspin right now so it, it, it's important uh but the the next one is going to be pretty important as well all right when we look at um george springer and jays didn't really get the fact we didn't get really get to see early on jays fans what he could mean to this ball club and see the george springer that has been one of the best players in baseball uh when playing with the houston astros prior to this season but now we're starting to see it and he's a difference maker for this roster, isn't he? Yeah, this is just what he is, as you were as you were saying. Uh, and if Blue Jays fans didn't watch a ton of Houston Astros games uh, over the last six, seven seasons, when George Springer was there leading off for them and, and having some of the same momentous moments that you saw on Sunday uh, for the Astros, this is what he's done throughout his career. He's always just been this guy. And the, the kind of cool thing about his career is he's gotten better as it's gone on. You know, he was good early in his career he got to be great sort of through 27 20 uh, uh, 2017 2018 when, when the astros were really good and, and contending for world series obviously you had trash cans and the cheating scandal at that point as well but then he continued being really good even after all of that came out and even after the astros uh, we presume stopped cheating and now he is really good in toronto <laughs> and really good with the blue jays it was unfortunate that he missed the essentially all of the first three months of the season and blue jays fans didn't get to see it can you imagine where this team would be now if they had george springer atop their lineup for all those games all those late and close games that they dropped over the first three months if they just had that even if he uh wasn't hitting to quite the level that he is now if they just had the plate appearances and the approach and the patience atop the lineup and the carryover effect that that has to Vladimir Guerrero Jr. behind him and Bo Bichette and Marcus Simeon and Teoscar Hernandez, just the way that he sets the tone atop a lineup and the way that he uh, kind of walks that really interesting line every hitter has to between being aggressive early in counts or also being patient and, and letting uh, working a plate appearance and, and getting a pitch count up for a starter. If they had that over the first three months, I bet you the Blue Jays record looks a lot better uh, today than, than it does. So, yeah, George Springer, absolutely one of the more impactful players in the game. It obviously takes some time to kind of get your mortar going over the course of a season. Now he's at 40-some-odd uh, games. You know, he talked about, hey, this team kind of – does this line up with him kind of getting into that midseason form, matching where the team is right now, and this is how, like, this team can start stacking together five, six-game winning streaks? You know, Dick, I think the Blue Jays are on a run. <laughs> if you look at it, since, uh, since June 19th, Blue Jays have a 643 winning percentage. They've won 27 of 42. So that is a run. So I think now it's just about sustaining the run because if the Blue Jays continue to win at a 640 clip over the rest of the season, over these final 52 games, 
they're going to finish in excess of 90 wins and they will likely qualify for the postseason. It's that simple. So right now it's just about sustaining what they've been doing. Obviously they are going to lose more games. Obviously there's going to be probably two, three game losing streaks in there. There's going to be dispiriting losses. They'll probably be walked off uh, or they'll cough up a lead in the seventh or eighth inning, or they'll have a night where they lose by one run because all their bats are cold. Those things are going to happen in an MLB season, but you can't let them compound and you can't let that carry over into the next day and the day after that. And, uh, and now you've, you know, the law dropped a series to a, to a team that you really shouldn't. It's about turning the page quickly, getting back into uh, the win column. And that's something the Blue Jays have done because, as we know, they have had some very tough losses this season. They have let some very winnable games slip through uh, their fingers, but they still found a way to get to a point now where uh, they're 10 games above 500 and uh, winning at a pretty high clip. So that's, uh, that's a good thing to see. We're speaking with Arden Zwelling, Sportsnet Blue Jay analyst. Arden, Hunton, you had a bit of a tough outing yesterday. You pointed out in your article on sportsnet.ca, had some trouble uh, locating his pitches. Just a one-off or anything that maybe makes you take pause? I'd say just a one-off. He was so good his last two times out, um, one of them against these these Boston Red Sox. So I think this just happens sometimes. He walks such a fine line, Hunjin Ryu, with the command and control because he is throwing a 89 to 90 mile per hour fastball. And big leaguers can do really punishing things to that pitch when it's left on the plate. So Hunjin Ryu is not going to blow any pitches by anybody. Uh, he's got stuff that moves a lot with his curveball and with his changeup, but if he can't locate them where he wants to, they aren't going to generate swing and miss outside of the zone. They'll be too easy to lay off of, and if he leaves them on the plate, those are also pitches that can get barreled. So he really has to paint the corners and attack the edges and, and just have his command locked in, and he just did not have that on Sunday. So that happens to all pitchers, even the best in the game, uh, lay an egg every once in a while, but uh, I fully expect Hunjin Ryu to just be back to himself uh, the next time we see him because uh, his track record over uh, eight MLB seasons now suggests that that's, where, that's what he's going to do. Arden, we know the bullpen issues that the Jays had early on this season. Uh, we also know that they tried to address some of those issues by making some trades prior to the trade deadline. Going forward, what do you think the ideal rotation would be for Charlie Montoya once they get through the starters for the Jays? Well, in the bullpen right now, it's a bit of a dicey scenario because uh, you've got Jordan Romano in the ninth inning, and you feel good about him, certainly, and he has shown that he can come in and throw 100 and have a wicked slider and get big league hitters out and miss bats and, and pile up strikeouts. But beyond him, uh, as things are presently constituted with Tim Mays on the injured list, Julian Merriweather on the injured list, Nate Pearson not in the majors, there isn't a lot of swing and miss towards the back end of that bullpen, and there aren't a lot of guys who get high strikeouts. Uh, and that is tough late in games because you don't want the ball in play. Because when the ball is in play, that is when luck can go against you, whether it's the, you lose one in the lights or there's a shift beater to the uh, you know to the opposite side with a left or right handed hitter, or uh, you know you just fall prey to just the the crazy swings of luck that can happen throughout a, an MLB game. So with Adam Simber, who who is seeing a lot of leverage right now, balls in play a lot. Brad Hand will uh, strike guys out a bit more, but he's been a little shaky for the Blue Jays. I think he is better than he has shown to this point, but he needs to obviously get back to the point that he was at earlier 
in this season. And Raphael Delis, just a little bit of a wild card. He's been very good lately, but there was a stretch before that where you could not put him in leverage. So it's kind of hard to know what you're going to get from him. So the Blue Jays really need to get like Nate Pearson up to the big leagues and throw in hard um, fastballs and, and nasty breaking stuff out of this bullpen. They'd love to get Julian Merriweather back to the big league bullpen. He's been out since April uh, with this oblique issue that he's suffered repeated setbacks with. Um, you know, th- those two guys would really help this bullpen, and that's kind of where these where where help has to come from now beyond the trade deadline. It has to come internally because the Blue Jays roster is what it is. So with, without those two guys in this bullpen and without a healthy Tim Meza, uh, you know, Charlie Montoyo isn't looking at the best options out there, and, and the Blue Jays' bullpen is still a pretty clear weakness on this team. So through August and into September, uh, paint us a picture. How does it go right and how does it go wrong uh, for the, the for the Toronto Blue Jays? Uh, it goes right by the Blue Jays continuing to do what they've been doing over the last 42 games. So winning a 640 clip, they keep doing that. They're going to be well above 90 wins and, and likely uh, play at least playing in the wildcard game. They might have an outside shot at even hosting it at Rogers Center, which would be pretty cool to do in front of home fans who waited two years to, to see baseball. And so that would obviously uh, include George Springer and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bill Bichette, Marcus Simeon, all staying healthy and, and productive. It would mean Robbie Ray, Hunjin Ryu, Jose Barrios are still all pitching well. It would mean the Blue Jays' bullpen has uh, you know, has stabilized and given them some big innings late in games. So that's how things go right. Things go wrong. Um, guys get hurt. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. suffers a season-ending injury. Or George Springer re-aggravates his quad issue. Bo Bichette rolls an ankle. Teoscar Hernandez uh, pulls a hamstring, whatever. Uh, you know, Hunjin Ryu... Uh, kind of runs out of gas towards the end of the season and just isn't to perform at peak levels. Robbie Ray starts walking everybody all over again. Uh, Jose Barrios blows out his elbow and the Blue Jays' bullpen implodes. And all of a sudden, uh, the team is losing a ton of games and they just fall out of the playoff race. And, and we all look back to uh, you know the end of this homestand here in August and think, wow, <laughs> that was a really surprising turn of events. That team looked like it was really positioned to make some noise over the final. Uh, you know, two months. So there's kind of the best case and the worst case scenario for you if you're looking for it. Uh, yeah, let's take the best case scenario, Arden. I don't like that worst <laughs> case scenario that you just pictured. Hopefully putting it out there into the universe doesn't cause any harm to the Toronto Blue Jays. Um, you asked. You uh, guys asked. Hey, this one's, on, this one's on Bick. He's the one who put that out there. It's not always sunshine and rainbows. you got to prepare for the for the rain. Yes, well, hopefully not with these Blue Jays. Uh, when you look at the American League and you look at the top seven teams, which includes Toronto, there's about eight games that kind of spans all of those teams. But you, when you look at the tiered order, who are the top teams and where do you put Toronto in that uh, ranking? Well, uh, so the top teams right now in the American League, you would have to say, are Tampa Bay, the White Sox and Houston. Uh, those are the teams that have really performed the best over the uh, over the first half. Um, and then you kind of look at this wild card race right now, and you know, the Yankees and uh, and Oakland have uh, you know been performing pretty well lately, while the while the Blue Jays have as well. And then uh, Boston has been in just an, an out and out tailspin. So I think that I would put Tampa Bay, the White Sox, and Houston as kind of like that top tier. And then I think there's a second tier with the Yankees, the Blue Jays, and the Oakland A's. And then you could put Boston in at the bottom of that second tier if you want, but a lot of their flaws have been exposed over the last uh, week and a half 
two weeks and uh, they are plummeting in the standings right now. So, you know, we'll see if they can pull themselves out of this and maybe you get Chris Sale back into that rotation and all of a sudden things are looking a lot rosier for them. But I, I, that, you know, I, at this point, I would put them behind the Blue Jays, the Yankees, and, and Oakland, even though they are still in the thick of that wild card race and, and holding the wild card spot uh, tenuously behind Oakland um, there in the American League. So that's how I kind of size things up right now, but a lot can change over these next two months, certainly. Arden, Toronto goes in two. They play a four-game set with the Angels. Then they play three games in Seattle, who they did leapfrog in the wildcard race during the span at home. Seattle's four and six in their last ten games. How do you how do you see the Seattle Mariners team? Because I know there's a lot of Mariners fans out here on the West Coast. The Seattle Mariners are a team that were uh, really benefiting from luck over the first uh, three, four months of the season. I know that's not going to be a surprise to anybody. You look at their run differential, uh, it's like minus 50. So they mm-hmm. gave up 50 more runs than they had scored. They kind of had like the inverse of the Blue Jays season where the Blue Jays had this like super fluky year where they couldn't win in one run games. And uh, they had this massive run differential and a Pythagorean record that suggested they would be expected to win like 10 more games than they actually had. Mariners were the inverse of that, where they were winning and they had a great record in one-run games. They had a lot of improbable comebacks and a lot of really um, sort of fluky, good luck bounces go their way. And hey, like good for them, great, right? That put them in position to maybe make some additions to the trade deadline and and make a push. But they didn't do anything too substantial at the deadline, and I think you're seeing them now sort of you're seeing the results normalize. A little bit you're seeing them come back down to earth so it'll be interesting to see where they are at and where the blue jays are at when the blue jays get to seattle next weekend mm-hmm. because in that series the blue jays might actually have a bit of an opportunity to bury the mariners in, in this in this wild card race they're still there still hanging around right now but if the blue jays were to sweep that series it would be hard to envision Seattle really getting back into it over uh, the, the final five or so weeks of the season at that point. Hey, Arden, thanks so much for joining us today. I know it's been a pretty busy time with the Jays being back in Toronto. Um, thank you for talking to us about the Jays today. I'm sure we'll touch base as this pennant race or wildcard race comes down the stretch. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Be well. You as well. That is Arden Zwelling, Sportsnet Blue Jay analyst. He's got a piece right now wrapping up the game yesterday over on Sportsnet.ca if you want to check that out. Bick, are you one of the ones who would be in a non-COVID time going down to Seattle to watch the Jays play? Are you like part of Jays Nation, Jays North? I was hoping, uh, I'm taking another couple of weeks off here at the end of August. I was hoping to go down just for a Mariners game Mm -hmm. outside of, you know, it being the Blue Jays. Uh, Seems uh, increasingly unlikely, but uh, yeah, of course. I mean, what a perfect summer event. I haven't done enough of it. in years past, but uh, definitely moving forward. It's cool. Greg and Jamie and I have a road trip. If you want to come, I think it's July 7th. Is it July 21st of next year, 2022? Anyways, they came up with a schedule last week, and the Jays are in Toronto in July on a weekend series. It's perfect. I think it's a weekend series. If not, we can take some time off from work. It's a four-day series that goes into the weekend. It's Thursday, Sunday, yes. And we've already decided we're on location. We're going to do the show from there. It's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Like off your cell phones? What's going on? (laughs) No, we're going to make the company pay for our trip. (laughs) Just broadcast all the shows. Let from... me know how that goes, and if you guys get a yes, tell me who you spoke to okay. so I can send all my requests into them as well. Yes, What's up, Carolyn? Carolyn Verleek, of course. 
with the updates. Yeah, she is definitely Mass in. Waving at us definitely as well. yeah. in. I know she will be in for a road trip to go see the Toronto Blue Jays play in Seattle. It was fun watching them play with fans. Um, it does. And I asked Arden off the top if he could quantify it. You really can't. Like, no, when you it's... have just the, it was almost like opening day again for the Toronto Blue Jays. It's like you can't reset the record, but you can reset where you're going going forward. Mentally, and right? Exactly. And to have those fans there, and they just, they're a team that has fun, anyways. You know, they're a bunch of young guys that are just coming up in their prime or in their prime right now. And they have a ton of <laughs> little kid at the ballpark playing, playing ball energy, right? Like yeah. you see them dancing in the locker room. You see them putting the the home run jacket on. You see them taping Vladimir Guerrero to the bench when he's not playing. You see Teoscar Hernandez holding everyone's gloves and hats on the, you know, on, in the dugout because it's baseball and you have a lot of time on your hands and you have to fill that time. But yeah, it's it's pretty fun to see. I hope uh, you did not jinx them going forward. We'll put it that way. I didn't do anything. I, look, I, I was thinking, just asking Arden there, like that home run by Vladdy. Traditionally, you know, 7-4, you're like, oh, this is just part of a ball game. But because that swag that this team has, that youthful, mystic wonder, whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it, it did feel like, hey, this is a moment a team can come back from. And it just chip away, chip away. Springer gets sacked in. And then there he is late in the game, two-run shot, puts him ahead. Like, it's those moments that a young team can grow into. Mm-hmm. And that's why that, that Vladdy home run to me was a springboard into what Springer did later in the game. Well, and too, you just, now you have that in the back of your brain, right? We're down yep. 7-2. We're down whatever. We have the firepower to come back in any game, and we're never out of it. And I think that's important. With a young ball team, two hours in the books. One more to go with our Calgary audience. Two more to go with our Vancouver audience. We're going to talk to Mirren Fader coming up in the bottom of the hour. Of course, she is a staff writer with The Ringer. She also wrote the book, Giannis, The Improbable Rise of an NBA MVP. We'll talk to her about the life and career of Giannis Antetokounmpo. We're also going to talk next about an important date back in 1988 and what that means for today. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Bick Nazar in for Scott Rintoul on the Sportsnet Radio Network.